Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief, and I have the pleasure of speaking today with Dr. Milan Anatkat. Dr. Anatkat is Associate Professor of Dermatology at Washington University in St. Louis, where he also serves as Program Director of the Residency Program and Director of Clinical Trials. Dr. Anatkat, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about hydradenitis suppurativa. Can we start by first defining that disorder for our listeners? Sure, and thanks again for having me. Hydradenitis is a chronic inflammatory condition affecting specific regions of the skin, uh, primarily the flexures, so the armpits, the groin, the creases of the buttocks, along with, for many women, uh, under the creases of the breasts, and characterized by both small and large inflammatory nodules and abscesses that can then devolve into formation of sinus tracts due to deeper pockets of inflammation that do not completely resolve. So I certainly have seen patients in practice who maybe um, have what's initially thought to be a cyst or some lesion in the groin. How do you know if it's an isolated finding or if they're going to go on to develop hydradenitis? Are there some certain clues that you may be able to see initially? There are. There are some clinical clues that help you make a diagnosis of hydradenitis as opposed to some other things in the differential, such as an epidermal cyst or a simple folliculitis or furunculosis, as you've alluded to. Uh, One big feature is chronicity, uh, the length of time that a patient has been suffering from uh, these ailments will really point to more of a chronic inflammatory disease rather than a persistent infectious process. Uh, There are certain clinical clues, such as the presence of the double comedone, where there are two uh, comedonal openings uh, that are somewhat characteristic, although not always seen in early lesions of hydradenitis. As I alluded to earlier, there is the formation of fistula or sinus tracts that connect to abscesses um, that have deeper involvement. Uh, That is a very characteristic sign of hydradenitis, along with the Resolution of some of these lesions with hypertrophic scarring, again, distinguishing it from what we're typically seeing in the natural evolution of an epidermal cyst. So definitely, even if you're meeting someone for the first time, there are certainly some clinical signs that you can use to help make the diagnosis. Are there other signs? Are there maybe epidemiological signs, um, certain types of patients or a demographic that tends to develop hydradenitis more than others? Sure. Um, You know, my first recommendation when it comes to diagnosing hydradenitis or looking for it is simply to ask. I think hydradenitis is vastly underdiagnosed for a variety of reasons. I think the uh, knowledge of this diagnosis from some of our non-dermatology colleagues is is still evolving and perhaps uh, not at full potential. I think patients are oftentimes embarrassed uh, to present their lesions and don't often offer Uh, that they're suffering from drainage or painful nodules in their groin or their buttocks. Um, I think when you evaluate a patient for the first time, asking how long they've been suffering from these conditions will help you. There is a strong family history in many patients. Up to one-third of patients are believed to have a positive family history. Um, In terms of epidemiologically, it disproportionately affects women. It also disproportionately affects African-Americans and those of biracial descent. So it's estimated, I think, two to three times as frequent 
uh, affecting women and African Americans, and it's typically young adults, so some in the ages of 20s and 30s. And you mentioned that sometimes patients are embarrassed to bring this up. Is this a diagnosis for which a patient would make an appointment? Or is this something that a patient happens to be seeing you for a full body skin exam and you have to ask or you won't know that they have this? You know, over the years, as I think patients become more comfortable with what I treat, I think for certain practitioners, as they develop a reputation for treating a certain disease, patients have offered their diagnosis to me much more willingly. Um, But initially in practice, I would say many times patients won't offer it initially. Uh, In fact, it'll be the fifth or sixth visit with a patient before they'll offer to me that, oh, I have one other thing I want to talk to you about, which is something they've been dealing with for a long time. I think because of this embarrassment, patients don't always present it, and and therefore the the estimates of how many people are affected with this, which at the moment range somewhere below less than 1% to 4%, are probably still underestimating how frequent this disease really is. Do we know what causes hydranitis? We do not know what causes hydranitis. There are multiple theories, and there are things in the literature hypothesizing potential pathogenesis. We know the inflammation starts around the hair follicle and adnexal structure. Uh, The role that various sweat glands, especially the apocrine glands, play given the anatomic regions that are affected are not fully clear. Uh, What we do know is that it starts as inflammation around the hair follicle and then a cyst or pseudocyst of sorts forms um, I think what's unique about hydranitis is that that pocket of inflammation remains uh, with an epithelial lining, and, and I think that's why there is a persistence of that cyst in the deeper areas as opposed to other analogous or similar conditions that we see that are able to self-resolve. But, but in terms of the underlying genetic factors, uh, we're not completely clear in terms of what's causing it. Now, I know that you've done some research into other factors that are associated with hydranias. What are some of those factors? And should we be asking certain patients more questions if they have these comorbidities, for example? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So the the number one question that I would ask patients who have hydranias is whether or not they smoke. And so it's been shown that smoking, specifically smoking uh, and tobacco exposure, Uh, is the only modifiable risk factor that can make hydranitis worse. Uh, We did a single institution retrospective study evaluating factors that would lead to uh, patients benefiting from initial therapy, and uh, we saw that one of the only factors that was a negative predictor is whether or not they either directly smoked or were exposed to secondhand smoke, and that's been supported with other uh, publications in the literature. I think there's other Uh, potential diseases that could coexist with hydranitis. In another study that we did, we saw that there was a disproportionate amount of Down syndrome patients. Um, And so in other words, the rate of hydranitis within the Down syndrome population is more than double the rate of hydranitis in non-Down syndrome populations. And and again, that's been supported in the literature uh, by other authors. Other diseases that we know that can coexist with hydranitis at a disproportionate rate would be inflammatory bowel disease, specifically Crohn's disease. Certain forms of inflammatory arthritis, uh, both seronegative and rheumatoid arthritis, um, along with more common diseases such as uh, diabetes. Um, I think the other thing to talk to these patients about, and again, we alluded to, to sometimes the embarrassment associated with this diagnosis, but it has a huge impact on the psychological well-being of these patients. And so many of these patients, whether related or unrelated, have a high rate of anxiety and depression. And so appreciating the mental health 
burden that these patients carry uh, is an important thing when talking and treating these patients. So certainly it sounds like there are a lot of important questions to ask when you're evaluating a patient for the first time. If you are confident with a clinical diagnosis, are there any ancillary tests that would be helpful? Do you ever have a situation in which you would do a biopsy, for example? You know, I think uh, routinely, no, I do not perform a skin biopsy. This is primarily a clinical diagnosis. There can be overlap, like I said, sometimes I think with the coexistence of Crohn's disease, that sometimes a biopsy would be useful. I will say the clinical features of cutaneous Crohn's disease that really help separate uh, would be the presence of linear, what what was termed knife-like fissures in the inguinal folds or in the gluteal cleft. I think that is sometimes a clue that something deeper is going on, um, or deeper ulcerations. Uh, especially over the sacrum. But otherwise, it's primarily a clinical diagnosis. I do not routinely perform skin biopsies. Uh, I think other things, like I said, um, to really ask would have to do with with other lifestyle factors uh, that could both be associated with or worsening the disease. So a biopsy would only be indicated if you were not sure of the diagnosis or perhaps if you were concerned about an overlying malignancy or secondary malignancy. Um, Is there ever a role for culture? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think by its very nature, hydroenitis is believed to be a sterile inflammatory disease, so not infectious in etiology, but the presence of superinfection is is known to occur and can affect a, a healthy percentage of patients. Uh, so I think if ever there's a question or a concern for uh, infection, culture is definitely indicated. So worsening of pain, uh, worsening quality of drainage. I think if you've been following someone and there's just something atypical in their clinical course, it's always something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, There's ongoing work in terms of the role of the microbiome uh, in in areas affected with hydroenitis versus those that are not affected. And so I definitely think keeping in mind um, uh, the role of of bacteria or other pathogens are important. But but at its core, uh, I do emphasize to patients and their practitioners, and I, I think to the audience as well, that at its core, hydroenitis is a sterile disease. That's very good to know. If a patient is coming in for the first time, they're going to have a lot of questions, um, questions about expectations. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about disease course and how you can potentially alter the disease course with treatment? Sure, so there are, you know, as with many of our diseases, it ranges from mild to severe. And as we see hydroenitis become more severe, uh, what we see is more anatomic sites are involved. We see that the presence of sinus tracts by number increase and the presence of scarring increases. And the reason I point this out is there are stages of disease at which point sometimes we are limited by what medical therapy alone can do. So when counseling patients, we discuss that there are various stages of the disease that if they present with mild disease, there's no necessary guarantee that they will progress to having a more severe phenotype, but it is possible. Uh, and so for this reason, I think it's really important, as with many of our diseases, to, to diagnose it at earlier stages and to be willing to treat it at earlier stages uh, because we are limited in terms of what some of our therapies can do at later stage diseases. Um, I think when approaching that treatment discussion with patients, it comes down to the burden of disease that it has for them, uh, which is both a physical and a psychological question that, that we would discuss. How do you decide how to initiate therapy? Does it depend on the severity of disease? Are there some things that you might use for just mildly affected patients and others you might jump straight to if the patient is more severely affected? Sure. I found 
in my experience that topical therapies alone um, have minimal benefit. They have minimal toxicity, but, but most importantly, they have minimal benefit. So I think employing that as a bland antimicrobial wash has been helpful, but rarely beneficial as sole monotherapy. And so as with most, the treatment ladder is a balance between risk and benefit, uh, cost, and, and uh, just a discussion with the patient in terms of what their goals are. So s- simple things to start with would be antibiotics that we typically do for their anti-inflammatory properties more so than their antibiotic properties. So common antibiotics used in our practice would be things such as doxycycline, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, uh, or combinations of clindamycin and rifampin. Uh, there are other anti-inflammatory drugs that uh, are occasionally used as oral agents such as dapsone um, or increasingly more metformin, uh, especially for our patients who perhaps show signs of insulin resistance or overt uh, type 2 diabetes um, that may be overweight. Uh, and sometimes the, the combination of metformin uh, along with another uh, aspect of hydronitis therapy has been shown to have benefit. For solitary, uh, uncomfortable nodules with hydronitis, I am able to elicit a lot of temporary relief for patients with intralesional steroids. Uh, I usually use higher doses at 40 milligrams uh, per cc uh, when injecting, uh, more so than recommending incision and drainage, uh, just because the healing time is typically easier for our patients. And then there's been a lot of uh, work with biologic immune response modifiers. So uh, I think we know that the only FDA-approved therapy is adalimumab, uh, which does help some of my patients, but it is a reflection of what we see in the studies, which is less than 50% of patients see any real meaningful benefit. Um, I think there are multiple potential limitations to that, but at the FDA-approved dose, um, which is a high loading dose of 160 milligrams and then 40 milligrams weekly, I still see less than 50% of patients achieving significant benefit. Other biologic agents, such as infliximab, in my hands tend to do better, I think because it's IV, the ability to achieve a good drug level um, may have something to do with that. I think the fact that it's also weight-based dosing and some of these patients um, uh, come in with varying weights uh, offers a lot of promise. What I'm really excited about is that there's a lot of other agents being studied both currently and formally in clinical trials, in, including interleukin-1 inhibitors like anakinra, uh, interleukin-12-13 inhibitors like ustekimumab, and then current studies ongoing with, with uh, other biologic agents, I think, uh, are exciting. But to date, upon looking at this past week, there's only 17 clinical trials that have ever been done for hydronitis. And so um, I'm excited to see that more attention is being paid, but to date, there hasn't been a significant amount. One thing that you mentioned earlier is that many patients with hydronitis also have comorbidities, and it might be inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis or some other condition which might also be treated with a biologic. Is there any evidence that if you're treating a patient for one of their comorbidities, that as that improves, the hydronitis also improves? Um, that doesn't always happen. And so sometimes you can improve underlying Crohn's disease, uh, but see the hydronitis continue to be a problem, or you can improve their associated pyoderma gangrenosum, but their hydronitis uh, persists. Um, I mean, sometimes the agent you're going to pick is something that's duly effective for both hydronitis and their inflammatory condition. 
And so, you know, for example, inflammatory arthritis, I, I do see that patients know that both their hydroadenitis and uh, the inflammation in their joints are flaring at around the same time, so they do notice a dual benefit. But, but there are times where one of the comorbid diseases improves while the other does not. And let's say you have a patient who you are controlling on a biologic. Is monitoring similar to what it would be in other conditions? Do you have to do any additional lab works in this patient population? Um, what are there unique side effects that you need to think about? Yeah, you know, in, in my experience, I think using these agents, um, the the risk of of these agents are similar to what we see in our other diseases. So I think monitoring for specific infections, I think for the TNF antagonists, uh, doing a check to make sure that they don't have underlying or familial history of demyelinating disease, they don't have a personal history of congestive heart failure or malignancy. But the side effects for these agents do not seem to be uh, specific to those that we're treating for hydroenitis as opposed to those that we're treating for other conditions. Let's say you have a patient who happens to be in the 50% of patients who might improve with a biologic. Can they ever be weaned from that therapy? Yeah, so in my hands, I've seen people improve. I have rarely seen people fully clear. And so a lot of times we're able to improve their quality of life, minimize their burden of disease, the number of abscesses and nodules and fistula decrease. But getting absolute clearance is the exception and not the rule. So most of these patients do require chronic therapy. Um, and we rarely will, will stop therapy because we rarely are able to achieve full remission. We're able to improve, but not totally clear their disease. And in fact, the main reason that we stop therapy uh, is not full clearance of disease, but rather a plateau where the therapy may, may not be working as well. Uh, and so then we approach a, a potential need to transition to an alternate therapy. Are any of these systemic therapies typically covered, especially if they're not approved by the Food and Drug Administration, for example? Yeah, and so I think as with many dermatologists, we oftentimes prescribe therapies that are outside of what the FDA has approved for its usage. And so nonetheless, I will say that many payers are willing to pay for some of these agents, even those that are off-label. Uh, I think as we get into the biologics, which are the more costly of the ones that I've mentioned, you know, first and second line therapies are, are things that they'd like to see that have been tried posing a good rationale as to why we want to use those therapies, including oftentimes a reference list from what's already been studied in the literature or things that I provide. Um, uh, but, but yeah, we, do, we are seeing that payers are willing to pay for both FDA-approved and unapproved biologic medications. And then, like I said, there's currently um, some interest from the pharma world in terms of clinical trials uh, for this disease, and so that's also become increasingly an option for some of our patients to pursue. Thank you very much for giving us suggestions as to the appropriate questions to ask when we're seeing a patient for the first time and sort of a, a greater understanding of all of our treatment armamentarium. Are there any final thoughts with which you'd like to leave our listeners? Yeah, I think for, for many of us, this is why we became dermatologists, to help people with a skin disease that affects our patients both physically and psychologically. I think it's a challenge at the moment for the world of dermatology given the sheer number of people it affects, uh, given the number of people that um, have yet not been found that it's affecting. Um, and I think the horizon's very bright in terms of options, but, but at the moment we're very limited. And so I think I really just want to leave that with, I think we as dermatologists as a collective 
should want to try very hard to help a disease that affects so many of our patients. Thank you very much, Dr. Anadkat, for all of your insight today. We certainly appreciate your assistance.